Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Howard. I'm the founder and CEO of Musea. And uh, for this episode, I had a conversation with Shane Gross. He is a marine conservation photojournalist, and uh, he does these long-form projects on the ocean, and um, there are uh, humans' impact on the ocean. And uh, we get into a lot of science. We talk about underwater photography um, and a lot of his most memorable moments uh, in the water. Uh, so make sure to check him out at shanegross.com. You can follow him on Instagram at shanegrossphoto. Uh, just a reminder, we uh, are doing all of these and posting them to YouTube. This is the audio version. Uh, on the YouTube version, there's a lot of photos that uh, show his work as we go through his portfolio. So make sure to subscribe. Check us out at youtube.com uh, slash musea. Uh, also at the Musea Lab, um, we do fine art printing. We specialize in printing on uh, cotton papers with archival pigmentiques. So if you're an exhibiting artist and need work for a show, uh, we can do all the printing, matting, framing. If you're a wedding, family photographer, uh, landscape photographer, we can handle all of that stuff as well. You also have albums that are handmade. Uh, in Nashville by uh, this extremely talented uh, custom enclosure specialist. Uh, so uh, you can visit uh, musealab.com to learn more about that. And I think that's it. All right. So thanks so much for listening as always. And here we go. Yeah, where to begin? I mean, I, I was always interested in photography. I just didn't have the the gear until... Um, I got really into scuba diving, you know, and seeing that underwater world, I just wanted to, to capture it and, and show people how beautiful and amazing uh, it could be. That's pretty much it. So I was, I was backpacking Australia for a year and diving a lot and taking pictures just with like a little point and shoot. And, I was in, and you know, I just wanted that control over the image to, to be able to produce images like what I was seeing you know, in magazines and books and stuff like that. And so I just, something kind of clicked while I was in Australia that I wanted to take it seriously. And so I invested in, in gear and just started putting in the time. That's pretty much it. Awesome. Did, um, so did your love kind of for the oceans and things come first? Is what you're saying? Yes. Or the photography? Okay. Yeah. I was a shark nerd as a kid, <laughs> like, I grew up obsessed with sharks. Every piece of clothing I owned had sharks on them. Uh, every book that came out, documentary that came out, I was reading or watching it. Uh, so that's that's really what what got me interested in that whole world. Yeah. Okay. Did you want to be a marine biologist or anything like that? Oh, up? of course. Yeah. It was <laughs> it was predetermined that I would be a marine biologist when I was like six years old. Um, yeah. And then I got to high school, and uh, chemistry didn't click with my brain very well. So I had mm -hmm. to find another way to, uh, to make a living in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, we kind of have a little bit of a similar be beginning a little bit because I, I actually used to want to be a marine biologist, but I don't know, maybe a lot of kids did when they grew up, but, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it, when I got to college is when I hit the, um, uh, yeah, the science wall that I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> It's too hard. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I, uh, then I got into photography cause I was like, Oh, I'll just, I'll do like underwater photography. So I started taking photography classes in college and then, um, uh, just fell in love with photography in general. And then I was from Missouri, so I wasn't near the water. So right. it's kind yeah, of I, I grew up, 
I grew up in, in Saskatchewan in the prairies, and so I was really far from any ocean. Yeah. I get yeah. that longing of wanting to be by the ocean for sure. Interesting. Okay. And then um, I'm assuming you've moved and relocated since then. And yeah. That. So I spent, um, like I said, a year in Australia, and then I spent almost 10 years in the Bahamas. And now I'm on Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. Mm, okay. Um, looking at your work, uh, I kind of just want to start with like an overview of or overarching um, message of your work is, I guess, just over everything. Like, what are you trying to communicate uh, to people through your photography, uh, specifically within yeah what you're doing in the oceans? Yeah, I mean, I want I want to people to understand really two things. Number one, that the ocean is amazing and beautiful and needs our love and respect, and two just how fragile it is and how we are currently and have been for many years abusing the ocean and what we can do to kind of start to turn in the right direction because humans depend on the ocean for our health and not, not a lot of people realize that every second breath we take is oxygen produced by the ocean. So we got to take good care of it. Do you get discouraged at all by I feel like people that are doing conservation type work, it's very, can be discouraging at times of getting people just to care of whatever topic you're talking about. Um, this is like step one is just to care. And then two is actually making some sort of like change or commitment. Um, how do you deal with I guess, working through discouragement and just keep going, you know? Yeah, I definitely get discouraged. It's, it's so normal what we're doing to the oceans, the the rate at which we're catching fish, the rate at which we are um, pumping, you know, pollutions into the ocean and into the air, which ultimately ends up in the ocean. It's so accepted that it's hard to overcome that. We eat fish regularly, health articles recommended, um, and yet fisheries are, are, a lot of fisheries are in big trouble. Um, and fisheries is just one small, it's a big aspect, but it's only one aspect of all the ways that we are contributing to the ocean's demise. So yeah, little everyday things will sometimes just, I just shake my head and go, oh, it's so frustrating. Um, so overcoming that really, I don't know. I just, yeah, you just have to keep going and, and, and trying to find issues that people can get on board with. That, that gives me a lot of encouragement. For example, there's an invasive species in the Caribbean, the, the lionfish. Um, and people have res- like people who are really into hunting and killing animals. Well, they found something that they can kind of hunt and kill uh, that is helping the reefs by, by removing those invasive animals, they're actually helping the reefs. And so trying to find just the right fit um, for people can can make a positive change. And, um, and to be honest, my, my therapy is getting in the ocean and just seeing that there is still beauty there. There is still a lot worth saving. Um, mm. really encourages me. Yeah. Have you ever thought about, um, getting into like film, like video and stuff? I'm assuming you dabble in it, but okay. Yeah. I, I, I am, I'm just, I'm stubborn in that way. Um, yeah. getting into getting into moving images of 
it's not that big of a leap in terms of aesthetics, but it's a big change in gear uh, and that kind of investment mm-hmm. in gear and time. And then it's that balance of, okay, should I be filming now or should I be focusing on taking a still image? Because I feel that they are different enough that to do either really well, um, you need to be focused on that. Um, I, yeah. There is a way to get like, you know, behind the scenes videos or, or little clips here and there that kind of add to a photo story. But if I, if I set out to make like a short film, that's, it's a whole different ball game. And now I need to worry about audio and coverage in a different way. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. just, I feel like if I were to get into the filmmaking side, I would want to go in like full, fully in instead of kind of, Oh, here's a little bit I'm doing while I'm getting still images. Um, so right now I've chosen to just focus on still images to the great detriment of my wallet and career. But uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just stubborn in that way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there a topic or project you're working on right now uh, or like a maybe like a recent environmental issue that's really caught your attention? Yes, I so recently relocated from the Bahamas to Vancouver Island. So I still feel fairly new and naive to the issues going on in this area. But I've sort of undertaken, there's probably five or six different projects that I'm in sort of the the first third of a stage. Um, and then over the next few years, I'll, I'll some of those stories will be completed and some will need more time. And um, that's sort of how I work. Um, that's how I worked in the Bahamas and that's how it's going here. Instead of focusing on one thing and seeing it all the way from beginning to end before starting the second thing, because a lot of the issues that I work with, it's seasonal. So mm. for example, now I'm doing, um, a project on rockfish, which is this species of fish that's really slow growing and grows really old. They mature late in life. They can live for scientists say anywhere from 90 to maybe even 150 years or longer. And wow. they're really good tasting fish. So fishermen obviously target them uh, and they were severely overfished. Now they've sort of turned the corner and there's a lot of attention on how to conserve them so that they can live long lives. Um, and I'm working a lot with scientists and the scientists are working on them based on their, you know, um, their schedule and their um, university semesters. So they were working with them in the fall and then there was a break of four months and now we're working with them again with those fish. So for those three or four months, there wasn't much I could really do to work on that story. So I started a a different project on octopus Um, and now the rockfish are kind of back in. And then next week I'll be starting another project on an uh, an invasive species here on the West coast. And and they're actually on the East coast of of North America, but they're relatively new here uh, as the European green crab. And this crab will come into a, an ecosystem spread really quickly and outcompete other crabs and other animals. They will um, uproot the seagrass and actually destroy complete environments. 
And there's a lot of debate about how to handle that and the people that it's impacting, how we could remove them without, you know, there's a story from the East Coast about how they eradicated them from this one bay. Uh, and that was actually worse for the environment. Um, it's a it's a long story that I don't know if we want to yeah. get into all that, <laughs> but but we need to be very careful about how we handle these types of situations and try to reduce the spread, control that population. Um, but that's sort of how the schedule works. Is next week I'll start on that and work on that through most of the summer while simultaneously doing other. Um, working on other things as they come up and predicting where wildlife is going to be um, can be very, very difficult and seasonal. So I have to work on several projects at once. Mm-hmm. How often are you in the water? It varies, but if I had to average it out over a year, you know, each week I'm probably in the water for, it's a lot it's a lot colder here, so I can't spend as yeah. much time in the water, but probably right. five to six hours a week in the water. Um, okay. And then the rest of the time is, you know, doing research on, on these topics and, and contacting and communicating with, with the scientists and conservationists and just trying to keep up to date on all the recent news, that sort of thing. In the Bahamas, you could go in the water for six, seven hours a day and you'd be fine. But in this cold water, it just, it just can't be done. And to keep on top of my post-processing and all that takes, takes up a lot of my time too. So I can't spend all my time in the water. Yeah. But, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's just so many issues with the ocean. Um, it's like throw a dart um, yeah. and pick one. Uh, with some of your work, I've seen one of the, one of the threads is, uh, that would is carried through obviously just kind of like just trash and plastic and things like that. Um, can you speak about just overview of just what, what the problems that the like, trash is causing? Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, I mean, the, the, the big issue, the biggest issue might be climate change, but plastic pollution in the ocean is not that far behind. It's, it's really mm. hard to comprehend just how much plastic gets in the ocean. Um, I was on a Greenpeace campaign in August of 2019 where they were doing, we went really into the middle of the ocean. They had a big ship where we could just live on board for 16 days and really go to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, an area called the Sargasso Sea. And they would sort of had a standard sized, uh, they call it a manta trawl, where they kind of drag this thing along the surface of the ocean and it collects plastic. And it just, it's of course setting new records because we're not slowing down plastic uh, consumption and therefore plastic waste is also increasing. And what happens is the plastic doesn't, uh, biodegrade it just breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces and those pieces of plastic attract toxins um, so when little fish mistake it for food and eat it they are ingesting toxins as well as plastic and then of course a bigger fish goes and eats that little fish and as those toxins move up the food chain they amplify as they go up. So then you have the mm-hmm. top predators that have this like 
they're eating not just one little fish that has plastic in it, but they're eating, you know, thousands of fish with plastic in it. So they're, the levels of toxins and things like tuna and dolphins and the top predator in the, in the ocean, the orca is the most polluted animal maybe in the world. Um, and that leads to things like the, the milk that they give their calves is toxic. And so orca calves have an extremely high mortality rate probably, and, that, and that's a huge contributor to it. Um, so these, these problems are just overwhelming and, and interlinked throughout the whole food chain in the ocean. Whales are washing up on shore and their stomachs are full of plastic. So you can imagine they probably feel like they're full and don't need to eat, but their body's not getting any nutrients from that plastic. So they're just starving to death. Um, animals get entangled and trapped in it. Um, I've got the one picture of, of a turtle wrapped in um, fishing line. So turtles are reptiles that need to breathe air. They need to get to the surface to breathe air. Um, that turtle became entangled in fishing line. And then that fishing line also became entangled in coral. And so the turtle just couldn't, was trapped. It couldn't reach the surface to breathe and it drowned. Things like that are happening all the time in the ocean. We just rarely get to see it. I would love to have some sort of, um, if you have like a top five list of some actionable steps that people can take that would make a difference, but that are doable and don't feel like there's some huge mountain they have to climb. Yeah. Well, there is a lot that we can do. Um, but I, I would also like to say that we need to, I think, take, you know, not be too hard on ourselves if we're not perfect. I think the mm -hmm. real culprits to blame for all this stuff are the large uh, corporations and to some extent governments that, that can manage those corporations. Um, Coca-Cola, Nestle, I mean, if we're talking about plastic pollution, they could, they could change things in a massive way. Whereas one individual choosing to not use plastic, that still helps. That's still a good thing. Um, but it's not going to make the type of difference that the large corporations can make. So what, what can we do as individuals? We have to come together, first of all, and organize and put pressure on these large corporations to change the way that they're doing. Because individuals just, you know, reducing their plastic consumption a little bit. I mean, it makes a difference, but we would need billions of people to do that. And only a small portion of the, of the world population is in a place where, where we have the luxury to do that. So again, I'm not saying that we should do nothing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but really, the onus should should be on them to make those big changes and therefore we need to demand those changes from them. Um, but all that being said, some things that we can do that, that would make a difference, um, definitely reducing or eliminating as much plastic out of our lives as possible would be, would be great. Um, reducing or eliminating um, meat and dairy from our diets. The, the, the math on that is, is in and it's, um, going vegetarian or vegan, or even just cutting down a little bit, um, would, would, you know, take, would do a lot for carbon change, uh, for climate change. 
Um, what else can we do? Just being aware of the issues and talking about them in a, in a kind way, not getting angry at people if, they, <laughs> if they're not perfect. Uh, we just need to, to yeah. communicate better, I think, and not scold people and look down on people. Um, but just, you know, taking a kinder approach to all of that sort of mm -hmm. thing would be, would I think be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, voting with your wallet. I mean, that's, that's really buy buy products that are doing things the right way means that you're giving them money and you're not giving money to people who are doing things the wrong way. And that's what corporations uh, are most concerned about is, is the bottom line and, and the dollar. So use that and, and support local, you know, if, if your food has to be shipped around the world, even if you are eating a vegan diet, that still has a big impact. So eating local, buying local products, those kinds of things can uh, really help. I'm sure I'm missing a bunch of, of yeah, that's <laughs> important like things that, that list, we can but... <laughs> do. Uh, but again, yeah. let, let's, let's take a bit of pressure off ourselves. You know, I was trying to think how could we, how could you live like a perfect life and still be part of society? You can't. Um, society is built in an unsustainable way. And so for, mm. for big changes to happen, it's, it's going to ha have to be slow and it's, it's going to have to be incremental. And we need to celebrate the small victories along the way, even though things aren't going to be perfect tomorrow. If there is progress, we should, we should be happy about that and recognize that and celebrate that. Yeah. How do you feel about, um, I don't know. I, I try to think a lot of your work is definitely has this theme of kind of the relationship of humans to nature and, and the balancing and how we interact with it and all of that. But I, th I feel like a place that that bumps into a lot is places like aquariums or sea world or where there's just kind of like we're educating, but there's also this entertainment aspect as well. Um, how do you, what are your thoughts on that? I'm sure they're mixed. I'm assuming, but maybe not. Sure. And it's, it, to me, the issue of aquariums and zoos for that matter, it's not black and white. It, it mm -hmm. is a, you know, the, the more I look into it, the more I realize just how, how much good they do and how much harm they can do. Um, and I, and they have progressed, you know, they have gotten so much better over the last 50, 60 years. Um, so, so we're moving in the right direction and that's because of public pressure. So we should, we should keep on that. And, and again, it's one of those things where let's support the ones that are doing it right and not support the ones that are doing it wrong. And I, and I definitely support, you know, people who get out on the street and do protests and, and um, you know, to me, certain animals fare better in captivity. And so things like marine mammals, especially orcas, I mean, the bigger the animal, the harder it is to, provide an environment for them where they're going to be happy. And I, I think it's pretty well impossible to provide that for orcas or most marine mammals. Um, so to me, especially if they're performing tricks and stuff like that, that's a big red flag that, that I, I don't want to have any, anything to do with that, except maybe taking photos for like a journalistic piece or something like that. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to support those aquariums. Um, other animals can be kind of ambassadors for their species and can educate the public. Aquariums also, 
you know, they have experts, they have veterinarians. So for example, in the Bahamas, there was a manatee mother and calf and the calf got fishing line wrapped around one of its, its fins. And as the calf grew, the um, fishing line tightened and started to cut in and was actually mm-hmm. cutting almost to the bone. Um, and how do you handle that? Well, if it were up to a non-expert to go in and fix that, there's all kinds of problems. But the aquarium had the funding and the expertise to come in and properly take care of that calf, give, give them antibiotics, remove the line in a, in a safe way. And in some cases, they'll even take a manatee into their facility and rehabilitate it and get it healthy again before releasing it to the wild. So things like that are wonderful. And even, even SeaWorld does a lot of great things for the ocean in terms of, conver- in terms of, uh, in terms of conservation. However, they also do things that like, like keeping orcas in captivity and making them perform tricks that um, we now know is not good for them. It separates the, from them from their families. Um, you know, we know the dorsal fin goes like this. It's, they're, they're, there's no way that an orca can be happy in captivity. So I'm very proud of all the people that have made strides towards putting pressure on them to move away from captive breeding of orcas and all the trouble that that causes. Um, you, you know, you, it's not going to happen overnight. We can't expect them to just release the orcas back in the ocean. That has problems too. But if we stop breeding them in captivity, then eventually um, it'll be phased out and we'll be one step further along in the process of of treating those animals with the respect that they deserve. So we're definitely moving in the right direction, um, but there's still more work to be done. Yeah. Uh, All right. So I'm going to go through a series of questions, uh, a little more rapid fire, but um, (laughs) we can go through uh, some things. Uh, What is your maybe saddest encounter you've had underwater? My saddest encounter underwater? Yeah. I think it would have been the, the sea turtle that was, that was drowned, you know, its eyes had been eaten out by scavengers and it, it just, it just looked terrible. And I knew exactly how that turtle had died. That turtle had died. uh, It suffered before it died. I mean, I can't imagine drowning Mm -hmm. because you just can't reach the surface. Tangled in fishing line would be a pretty horrible way to go. Yeah. Uh, What's maybe the best or most memorable experience you've had underwater? I think about that a lot and I have two, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Two's um, fine. <laughs> okay. All uh, out. <laughs> I, you know, I got to, I, I, I went to Sri Lanka to try to see a blue whale, the biggest animal that's ever lived, mm-hmm. get to see one underwater in its natural environment. And uh, we were successful on the first day. Um, one swam by and it was almost like an out of body experience. It, you know, it was just so big and, and moving so fast and, you know, I'm trying to focus on taking the picture, but also enjoy the moment. And I knew how lucky and and special I was. So that was definitely amazing. Another one was off of, uh, Isla Mujeres in Mexico, where these sailfish, this is a six, six or seven foot long 
swordfish type of fish with a big sail on its back that it can pop up and, and just beautiful, brilliant colors. And they were working together to hunt sardines. And they're the fastest fish in the ocean. And just watching them work together to hunt uh, these sardines was, was really special. They would burst into the bait ball and use their sword and thrash it side to side to stun a sardine uh, and then eat them. And they would use their sails to corral them and work together. It was just, it was like a ballet, a really high speed, amazing ballet. It was yeah. absolutely. What are a couple of ocean animals that you think are misunderstood by humans? Well, the first one that comes to mind is definitely sharks. I mean, there's over 500 species of sharks. Um, but the word shark just, I mean, people have an immediate fear reaction to that word. And some of them are only, you know, they grow to like this, this big, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's no harm. And even the big predatory sharks rarely, rarely um, have a negative encounter with people. There's millions of people in the ocean every day and there's sharks around them and the sharks just swim away. They are not interested in us. Um, once in a while they do, they do bite people and there's a lot of, study and controversy and debate about why it happens but we need to keep it in perspective five to ten people a year are killed by sharks and if we think about how many people are killed every year in, in car collisions i mean five to ten by sharks millions in car collisions um, we don't have that intrinsic fear of of cars we do have that intrinsic fear of sharks and uh you know, it's it's a drum it's a drum I've beat a lot, but it still deserves to be to be heard. I think, yeah, yeah, they deserve our yeah. respect for sure. Um, when you're working on long, uh, you know, I know you mentioned you work on long form uh, projects. How long are you working on those? Is this like are they often years? Yeah, I mean, it depends on opportunities. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, a picture from 2011 could link up in a story to a picture from 2020. Um, so it, it's hard to define. Like one, one project that I, I like took from beginning to end in kind of a concentrated way was a, a story about seagrass. Um, and that one started with like literally drawing pictures on a piece of paper of what the story should be and doing tons of reading and, you know, tons of scientific papers and talking with researchers about what are the, what are the key things that the, the public should know about seagrass and putting together, you know, 10, 12, 20 photographs that could tell that story, visualizing them, and then going out into the field to try to execute on each one. That project took about three years from, you know, getting the idea to actually it getting published um, took about three years. Any dangerous encounters underwater? Well, no, I don't think I've ever really been in any real danger. Um, you know, I've gotten nervous a few times. Um, yeah. I can remember we were diving in Playa del Carmen in Mexico and it was a bull shark dive. So there was, you know, maybe a dozen or so big female pregnant bull sharks in the area. And the current picked up 
um, and the sharks for a second got a little bit amped up, not, not because of, of humans, but for other reasons, and they stirred up the visibility. And when the visibility goes down, mistakes can happen because then you can't see mm-hmm. as much. And sometimes sharks do start, you know, biting at things that not, not necessarily because they want to eat it. I've seen sharks bite other sharks, not because they intend to consume that shark, but because they bother them or it's competition or it's whatever. So I was sitting there or sitting, I was kneeling on the bottom of the sand in 80 feet of water, these big bull sharks in the area. And suddenly I couldn't see my own hand right here. There was no visibility. And so you don't know where the sharks are. And one of the rules in shark diving is that you want to make eye contact with the sharks because they're surprise Mm -hmm. ambush predators. So if you can see them, they're not hunting you. Um, So I just felt very vulnerable in that moment, but the sharks didn't make a mistake and everybody was fine. And, and that was it. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I can imagine sweating bullets a little bit um, at first. Uh, favorite ocean animal. And it's probably impossible, but. Well, I tend to like, like the, the freaks, the, the weird and wacky animals. I like, you know, when it comes to sharks, I like the hammerheads and the threshers and the weird looking sharks. One of my favorite ocean animals is the Mola Mola um, with its weird non tail. And it's also the biggest bony fish in the world. It can get to like 1300 pounds. Um, lately I've just been kind of obsessed with the cephalopods. That's the octopus, squid and cuttlefish the way that they can change color and texture and how intelligent they are and, and, you know, all their different senses. And there, there, there is an intelligence there. Um, When you interact with them a lot, you can really tell that they're, that something is happening in their brain where they're curious and um, just on another level. And I, I can't really explain them very well, uh, but watching an octopus hunt is as thrilling as anything I can imagine. There's yeah. they're super predators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I recently watched that uh, Netflix show, the my octopus teacher or whatever that is. It was like yes, I was so happy for them to win the Oscar, um, so mm-hmm. well deserved and, and such a wonderful film. And I, and you know, to me, that is not directly a conservation film, but it yeah. creates empathy and love for the animal. And so I think, I think it right. did a wonderful job in, as becoming an ambassador for, for octopus everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about just some technical stuff with the photography. What, well, you know, not everybody shoots. There's a lot of people that haven't never shot photographed underwater. So it presents a lot of challenges. Uh, what are some common challenges for anybody that's maybe getting into underwater photography for the first time they need to be aware of? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, is the expense. So you need to buy the, the decent camera and the decent lenses like you would on land. And then you need to buy a housing that goes around it, which can be as expensive or more as the camera itself. And then you need uh, different ports on the front, different windows, depending on whether you're shooting wide angle or macro. And then you need lighting. Um, the, the, 
the water filters out light um, and specific colors first. So that's why you'll see a lot of natural light pictures from any deeper than 20 or 30 feet. It's just all blue or depending on the water, it might be all green um, because the water's filtered out all the reds and yellows and all the nice colors that are down there. So you need to bring down your own light. Um, we call them strobes or flash guns and they are also very expensive. So it's, it's a big investment and then you need scuba gear and then you need to be <laughs> a boat, know, yeah, <laughs> a boat to get you there and, and all yeah. that. And it's just exponentially more expensive. Um, and then the other big difference from photographing above water is that you need to get really close to your subject because the further away you are, the water, again, it filters out colors and contrast. And so you, you need to be close. If, if something is further away than three feet from me, I almost don't even bother taking a picture unless it's a really special situation. You know, that blue whale, for example, um, yeah, that can be 30 feet away if the water's really clear. Um, but most, most photography underwater is within, is within arm's reach. And certain things are within literal inches. And sometimes I've got pictures of sharks literally pressing up against the glass in the front of my camera. And that's, that's when you can get the really crisp, clear, beautiful um, colors and textures and, and all that. Yeah. Your, st your story on the, like the alligators and the Cuban crocodiles, uh, where you, you're like extremely close to these things. And I'm like, wow, it's just, I don't know, visually, you could, you know, just, there's, it's kind of like sharks. I think there's that misunderstanding of like, these seem extremely dangerous and he's like that close to it. And, um, but again, I was, I was reading through and you're like, oh, the American car or, you know, American alligator, whatever's more, uh, calm and, all of that. It's just stuff I didn't know, you know, which is just yeah, fascinating I, to me. I didn't know that either. You know, different crocodile species have different levels of aggression and just different behaviors. Maybe not more mm -hmm. or less aggressive, but just different behaviors. And so when I was photographing the American crocodiles in Cuba, um, I knew that it was quite safe. I mean, a lot of people had done it before me and will do it after me. And there's, there's never been an incident, knock on wood. Um, but they're pretty, they're pretty casual. I mean, they just kind of lay there and, and bask in the sun and um, certain individuals are, are used to people. So you can, you can get really close. Other animals are really shy and you need to really take your time and build their, build trust with the animal before you get close. The Cuban crocodile is, is more on the other end of the spectrum. They're considered one of the most, if not the most aggressive species of crocodile. And so I really had to look for a, a very specific situation that would be safe. And I found one. It was an, an individual croc that was alone in the cenote. It was relatively small, just a couple of meters long. Um, it was somewhat used to people because it happened to be just on a, on a hiking trail that was frequented by people. So it's seen people a lot. Um, and I had a, and I had a team, I had three people watching, um, that if, if the crocodile did get aggressive, they were ready to jump in. Um, I mean, they didn't have rifles or anything, but they had, they had kind of sticks to, to push, yeah. to push it away. And, and I, 
there's some there's something about having a big camera. Here, I'll show you my camera really quick. Yeah. <laughs> it's on macro right now, but there's you know right. there's almost wow. some protection behind here. You know, I can I can push a crocodile or a shark away with this. It's um Yeah. Whether or not it, it actually helps, I don't know, but it definitely gives me <laughs> confidence to have that barrier yeah. between me and an animal like a Cuban crocodile. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, maybe not gear related, but let's say you bump into somebody that's wanting to get started in underwater photography and maybe it, it maybe it's not, you know, animal based or conservation based. They just want to get in a pool or whatever, uh, commercial advertising work. Um, I mean, what, what advice would you give them to get started? I mean, I'm sure it's the same stuff. They just like get super close, wide angle the whole way, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really about taking pictures and experimenting and, and finding your, finding what you like, um, finding what works for you. In terms of gear, you need to think about um, what your goals are. If your goal is to make money off of the pictures, well, then yeah, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to invest quite a bit. It's it's an it's another area that that's a little bit different from shooting above water. You really get what you pay for with underwater photography equipment. Mm. Um, if you have a flood, all that. It's all ruined really quickly. So, you know, you need to invest in, in decent gear and take good care of it um, if you want to have it around for a long time. And good insurance definitely helps as well. Um, but yeah, in terms of getting started, I would just look at what's out there, become a fan, find photographers that you like and, and follow their work and see how they do it and learn from them. Um, but try to not copy them, you know, what, what can you bring to it that isn't already there? And that's something I think about and struggle with a lot. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm thinking about taking on a new project, I think, okay, can I do, can I do this better than anybody else? Do I have access that nobody else has, or do I have a way to visualize these images that, that would set my images apart from, from everybody else? Because otherwise then, then what's the point? And if you want to just get into it for fun, then yeah, there's lots of options for um, less expensive gear and it is fun. You know, I, I really enjoy taking pictures with my phone or with smaller cameras underwater. Um, it can be great and, and totally rewarding and it's still going to impress your friends and family and right. have great <laughs> memories. So, yeah. and a lot of people might get into it that way and then realize that they do have an eye for it and, and want to progress onto more serious stuff and, and that's a great way to do it and you know if, if you aren't already a diver or free diver or snorkeler and you want to get into underwater photography i would encourage you to leave the camera on shore at first and just get your skills in the water up before you try and bring a camera in it there's mm -hmm. a lot of sensitive environments especially around coral reefs where you don't want to be floundering around and breaking coral and you're not going to get any good shots anyway doing that. So, so get your, yeah. get yourself, get your skills um, where they should be and then take a camera in. Yeah. I love it. Um, tell us where uh, people can find you on online. 
Yeah, so my website is shanegross.com. I'm on Instagram at shanegrossphoto, Twitter at shanegrossphoto, Facebook is Shane Gross Photography, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Where else am I? I think that I think that pretty much covers it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And on your site, I know you've got a you've done a photo book, and then you have some prints for sale as well. Yes. If anybody's yeah. interested in um, those? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of my book. It it just came out this past March. And it's basically 10 years of photographing in, in the Bahamas whittled down into my favorite images and stories. And um, it's hopefully great for kids and adults and um, all the money uh, raised from the sale of that book go to a nonprofit in the Bahamas called Brief. And they do mm-hmm. this wonderful, um, these wonderful kids sea camps where they they take local kids into the ocean. They take them snorkeling um, and teach them about the ocean, teach them about conservation, um, really getting the next generation ready to, to take on the take on the challenges that previous generations have left them with. So uh, I'm really proud of that. And so, yeah, you can buy the book uh, directly from my website at shingrose.com. That's awesome. Well, thanks, man. I'm really... Um... I appreciate your time. I love what you're doing. I think it's some very important work. Uh, so keep keep plugging away. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was uh, it was a real pleasure. <laughs>